0: Welcome to episode 33 of the End of Sport Podcast. And this is an episode I am really, really looking forward to sharing with you, where we get to sit down with Kevin Blackstone. You're probably familiar with Kevin's work as a national sports columnist at the Washington Post. And you've probably seen him as a regular contributor on ESPN's Around the Horn. But what you might not know is he's actually a published scholar and he's a professor of the practice in the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland, where he teaches a number of really, really interesting courses on sports reporting, but also a course on sports protest and the media. So in this episode, we talk about a variety of things, stemming from his own experiences um, in the sports media complex, to the unfolding social and political upheaval that we're seeing all around us, to the problems with the cultural appropriation of indigenous imagery, to the place of college football in relation to higher education and, its, and the tethering of athletic labor to education. So we really touch on a number of really, really important topics in this show. So I'm really excited to share with you. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, or leave us a review, a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Um, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at Pod. Send us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com or check out our newly launched website at www.theendofsport.com. So as always, enjoy the show. Kevin Blackestone is a longtime national sports columnist now at the Washington Post. A regular panelist on ESPN's Around the Horn, a contributor to National Public Radio, and co-author of A Gift for Ron, a memoir by former NFL star Everson Walls. He's also professor of the practice in the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland, where he teaches courses on sports reporting and on sports, protest, and the media. Kevin, it is truly a pleasure. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Derek. Listen, we always start off our podcast with the question um, because we kind of have guests all over the world coming onto the show, just of how you're dealing with the pandemic in Washington, D.C., especially with the kind of added layer that we're we're like talking about a pandemic through the lens of a massive social upheaval against, you know, police right. violence, racism and white supremacy. So just how how are you doing?
1: Well, you know, I have a uh, I have a small family I have a uh, uh a rising fourth grade daughter in the house, um, and uh, it's been—you know—it's been—it's been trying um, mm. because uh, school uh, obviously got shut down um, back in March. Everything all of a sudden went online. Um, it exposed the inequities in the public school system,
2: uh, mm.
1: which struggled um, uh, to be able to provide um, its educational services to a population that was suddenly scattered back at home yeah. into their very different socioeconomic situations, not all of which were, um, uh, were um, uh, easy um, mm. for, for education. And so, uh, you know, fortunately, my family is, you know, we're of means and we have bandwidth on our Wi-Fi and and we have computers and we do all those sorts of things. But, you know, that's been the most difficult part. And then just really having to um, have a really active kid all of a sudden not be able to do swimming and gymnastics and ice skating Mm -hmm. and all the things that she did um, some of some of which we were able to do online, and many of which we were not um but we've you know we've we've made the adjustment um, uh, my partner, her mom, works at uh, the National Institutes of Health, so she's had to make some huge adjustments. she's the chief of pharmacy there and um mm. what they're dealing with and so yeah, we've all made these um you know all made these adjustments and tried to. Uh, uh, I know people have, have, have used the word get back to normal. Um, <laughs> but I don't know that there is that, you know. And maybe the most interesting thing that my daughter said to me um uh at, at one point was we were we were heading out the house and we were putting on our mask and uh and she said to me she didn't want to get used to having to put on a mask. Which I thought mm. was kind of um, yeah she's cool for now but she's looking forward to that time when uh we won't have to won't have to do that but you know
0: yeah i think you you have a really good point that like there is, normal is gone and even if we do get back to something that resembles normal normalcy right. it's going to be completely different. different yeah i i don't really see like the plexiglass and the the all the stickers on the ground actually going away anytime no. No, uh, no and I, don't, I don't even. I'm not see the,
2: sure.
1: No, and I don't even see the mask going away. I mean, I think. No. you know, if we for anyone who's ever traveled to uh, China in particular, um, uh, you know, you see masks there. It's yeah. it's a normal piece of fashion, and I think that's yep. just what's happened here.
0: Yeah. It wouldn't be a bad thing because no. like these, we don't know where these things come from and the time, and by the time we do, we have no idea what to do with it. And this exactly. is a perfect example. <laughs> yeah.
1: exactly. So I can, yeah, I can, I can get with that, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Listen, we have so much to get to. Obviously we're bringing you on the show because of your vast history, um, working in the sports media field um, and in teaching young journalists of the, of the future. You've written so many pieces that I would consider to be culturally and socially relevant, and they sort of transcend the sporting world in general. And you've been like sort of long been interested in writing about the cultural relevance of sport far beyond athletics. Could you talk about, could you like kind of walk our listeners through your own experiences, perhaps as an up and coming journalist and sort of what drove you to focus on the cultural aspects of sport rather than being that sort of, you know, beat writer who simply cool. um, describes games and gives you like the latest breaking news? Sure. Um,
1: so I'll, I'll back up a little bit, try not to go too far, <laughs> but, um, but it, this, this is pretty far. Um I grew up in a pretty political household. Uh mm. my father was a uh, uh on the side he was a political organizer. He was he was uh what I call an epistolary activist. He was always writing letters to the editor and and guest columns in in the newspapers in the Washington DC area uh, about political issues. Um he was what we would call a race man. Um mm-hmm. uh uh, growing up in uh, growing up as a black man in America, and uh, uh, he was an integrationist, um, and so that's the uh, that's the, uh, the the cauldron um, that that my house was, and it was mm-hmm. and the dinner table was always a place for um, discussion and debate about uh, the topics of the day, uh, and uh, at some point I got attracted to, to journalism. Um, probably, I would say, you know, I, I would consider myself a Watergate baby. I remember mm-hmm. being uh, transfixed um, uh, by those events in the newspaper, uh, of which I was always a voracious reader, um, uh, and uh, just mesmerized by the hearings on television when I would come home from school and they'd be on TV uh, in the afternoon, and I would watch as much as I could before I had to run off to some sport that I was uh, uh practicing for that season. <laughs> um and uh so by the time I got to high school I knew I wanted to do to do journalism. And I did and and I uh, I uh, studied at Northwestern University, Medill School of Journalism. <laughs> and my interest uh, at the time was not sports, although I loved um I loved sports. Um I was really more interested in news. And yeah. I was interested in um, you know following in the footsteps of of um, Woodward and Bernstein and and uh, finding out things about government that would force it to correct itself um, and my senior year in um, in uh, in college at northwestern um, a, a mentor of mine who was a year older um, had been an intern uh, at a newsletter called the chicago reporter chicago mm. and the chicago reporter which still exists today and it's, it's online um focuses attention on social and racial issues in and around chicago and she thought that'd be a perfect fit for me and of course she was right and i interviewed and i got the internship uh, my senior year and absolutely loved it um uh and so My whole interest in journalism, uh, you know, was spurred by social and cultural developments. Um, I was able to get my first real gig um, as a senior in college at a publication that focused specifically on that. Mm -hmm. And so that really informed the way I conducted myself as a journalist from that point until today. And until tomorrow, so I always mm-hmm. kind of have a, um, you know, I can't say I'm a, uh, you know, I don't, I can't say I'm a practitioner of, of critical race theory, although I've read uh, the books and I've had a mm-hmm. chance to meet um, Patricia Hill Collins before she retired from the University of Maryland, She's yeah. really one of the progenitors of that, uh, that whole idea. Um, but I guess I was an amateur. I've been an amateur um, practitioner um, of that of that sort of theory uh, in my approach Mm -hmm. to to journalism, and you know, I've applied it to I've I've applied it to sports. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I have covered. I've been writing about sports since nineteen ninety, I think. I think the Mm -hmm. last um, the last full time news story was covering Nelson Mandela's tour of the United States after he was uh, yeah, sprung from Robin, Robin Island. And uh, uh, so, you know, I've always, I always challenged myself to try and look at sports differently. I've, I've covered the games. I've you know, I've written about mm-hmm. who's the best player, what coach should be fired. <laughs> and it's been, a, it's been a, it's been a blast. And I remember being, yeah. you know, one of the most fun uh, weeks I had in, in sports was covering the world basketball championships in toronto in like 1994 mm. i want to say it was it mm. was it was a great event so i I've, I've done that but um you know i think the world is finally catching up now as to the importance of sport um within the fabric of society
0: yeah i like i would say that you are amongst the if not the most critical mainstream sports journalists that I've read. Um, you're, you're unwilling to sort of budge in your own convictions. You're, you you are constantly bringing that lens of um, racial and social equality to your work. Um, And I commend you for it, but I'm also one of the things I'm really interested to get your your store or, or your thoughts on is how do you negotiate that, that being very critical of, of mainstream sport with call it fandom, or like mm-hmm. you, you spoke earlier that you have um, a, a young family who engages with, with sport and you grew up a sports fan. Like how do you navigate that line between fan and being a critical kind of um, vocal observer of it? Sure.
1: Uh well sometimes it just has to be extremely deliberate. Um I have joked mm. with a friend of mine sometimes when we watch a game, I I say, All right, let's do this uh without polemics. <laughs> but it's <laughs> but it's you know, but it's um uh but but it's hard. Um, you know, I I would say that uh I I force myself to do that and, and now it's really natural. And the reason I say I force myself to do that is because as a Black male um, journalist, and I point out the gender part only because we're talking about sports right now and it is mm-hmm. so dominated by black male. Yeah. Um, that if I were to think of what is before me only as most of my colleagues do, that I would be doing a disservice. Mm. Um, because to me, that would mean that I would be just, just be doing what everybody else is doing. And I wouldn't, yeah. be, I wouldn't, be, uh, I wouldn't be giving a, a different thought to and a different analysis to what's before me. I wouldn't be giving a rational analysis to it. And I think that's mm-hmm. important. You know, the, the very first sports column I wrote was about the Denver Nuggets and how they had become the first professional team to have um, two black managing partners. Mm-hmm. And one of the first acts of those managing partners was to fire the coach and look for a new one. And the coach that they fired, typically, um, was a white coach. Mm-hmm. And his response to them firing him wasn't to look at his job performance, which had been poor, which is the way any coach before before this coach was fired uh, would yeah. look at their firing. But instead, he looked at it in racial terms and said he was fired by two black managers because he was white and they were discriminating against him. And so mm-hmm. no one else kind of wrote it that way. Um, yeah, but I did. And, you know, and I, and I think that was important to point out to people, the hypocrisy of that argument, given the history of black coaches at that time in the, in the NBA. Um, and so, you know, I just I, I I have to, you know, I have to do that. Um, and, you know, how do you negotiate it? You know, in the beginning, it's not in the beginning. It wasn't easy. Um, mm-hmm. My uh, sports editor is a guy named Dave Smith. And Dave Smith is one of the legendary sports editors in the history of sports editing at at Daily Newspapers in the United States. Um, And uh, I I remember in the first year that I was writing columns, one time he pulled me into his office and he he said, "Um, you know, why are you writing all these columns about race? And I told him, I said, Dave, I'm... I'm really not writing a lot of columns about race. And I, and I looked it up and I gave him the data. I said, out of the, you know, the last 100 columns I've written, you know, two have dealt with race. I said, the only reason uh, it stands, the only reason you can say that or readers will say that is because it's so different than from what anyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. So over time, he would make that argument to me. He would call me into his office and say, why are you writing this again? <laughs> And then one time um, after I'd been there for quite, quite some time and he was on a radio show and a reader called into the radio show and asked Dave that exact same question. And Dave's response by then was, you know what? Kevin doesn't write about race all the time. His last hundred <laughs> calls only a couple, but you rarely see this. And so you believe mm-hmm. that he writes about race all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? Now, I do write about race all the time, and everyone <laughs> else is writing about it, too, because that is what is dominating our narrative. I just got off the, uh, uh, the you know, I, usually on Tuesdays, I have a conversation with my editor at the Washington Post, and um, uh, her conversation yesterday was to pay attention to the opening of the NBA today in terms mm-hmm. of how they protest, um, yeah. and write a column about that. Uh, so, yeah. um, <laughs> Uh, the world is catching up to us.
0: <laughs> Listen, I I do have a question and a couple questions about um any or about leagues. Sorry, about teams uh, I mean, and their and what they've done in like in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement and into the social upheaval. So we'll get to that. But I kind of want to do a little bit more digging into your experiences um, as a, a very. Um, influential sports journalists. Um, and I, so in a piece that you publish in the Wake Forest Journal of Law and Policy, which we'll link in the show notes, um, mm-hmm. titled The Whitening of Sports Media and the Coloring of Black Athletes' Images, you brilliantly wrote, and I'm going to quote just a little bit of it, okay. These the consequences of an increasingly less diverse or more white sports media covering what is unquestionably A more diverse or more black and brown major sports team universe are concerns proven by research over the years that black athletes are portrayed negatively and stereotypically. They are concerns that will continue to heighten anxieties about black males and society in particular. The reasons for these differences are not in the athletes, but in those who hold the prism through which they are viewed. And when I was reading this, I found this a very powerful statement, and I wanted to get your thoughts on, and, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the complicity that sports media has in historically contributing to, reinforcing, and even hiding and suppressing white supremacy and racism, and how you have kind of tried to resist that in your own impact in this field. Sure, and I gotta,
1: I gotta say that was my um, maiden voyage um, in writing <laughs> an, an academic. Uh, uh, it's a uh, brilliant piece. Novel. It's a well, really wonderful well, piece. Thank you. It's nothing like what what you do, and, and your listeners should know. I mean, you you do um, uh, great work, um, which is why I've called on you um, to uh, as an expert witness on on much of this. Um, you know, uh, w- we have given. This is one of, my, one of my gripes, one of the things I try and get people to think about. We've given sports an undue amount of credit um, in this country mm-hmm. as being um, in the vanguard of social change. Uh, and the historical truth is that sports has not been in the vanguard of social change in this country. The fact yeah. of the matter is, it's been a laggard when it comes to social change in this country. Um, it's been a follower of whatever the social morals um, uh, are or mores are at that time. Um, mm-hmm. I always tell people, you know, Major League Baseball celebrates Jackie Robinson, right? And people grow up celebrating Jackie Robinson. But in order for there to have been a Jackie Robinson, there had to have been something that Jackie Robinson stood against. And what it yeah. was was 60 years of Major League Baseball refusing to allow the progeny of enslaved Africans to play its game. Um, and that's what needs to be uh, remembered, recalled, dissected. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we've created this myth. You know, we, we, we are myth makers in sports. And we've mm-hmm. created this myth um, about the Jackie Robinson um uh, figure um that is before us um we have uh done baseball service in whitewashing that horrific um uh, sixty year history where it was all white, where mm-hmm. it promoted um white male masculinity and supremacy um where it was where it degraded uh, the achievements of black men. Um, we've, we've done its bidding. Um, when you look at college sports, I was just talking to uh, some folks at Radford University about this the other day. Um, but when you look at college sports, we have in the media, we have done college sports' is bidding for it in regurgitating this idea that the athletes who generate once again, we're talking about black male athletes who generate all this revenue for uh, for for college sports um, are a class of people um, who are not deserving of the respect as laborers, as employees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um that they are um in this college uh, athletic industrial complex um we haven't asked enough questions we haven't prodded enough we have not been we have not been truthful um yeah. and so i think that's that's really that's really important and so it's incumbent upon me uh as a black man in this country um or as haki Matubudi, my favorite poet would say <laughs> uh as an African in a European setting, um, mm-hmm. to underscore all this mm-hmm. and to hold those institutions um, accountable and try to get them to uh, to change their positions, and I think the public needs to know that. And yeah. you know, it's a it, it, it's a it's a long battle, um, but I think people are far more conscious of that those issues now than they than they ever were before. And so, so you know, how does one grapple with it? How how do I how do I balance that? I I I don't even think I balance it anymore. I I point Mm -hmm. it out for what it is, Um, and uh, and I think people are finally starting to get it.
0: I I think so, too. And one of of the difficulties, by the way, thank you for that compliment. I'm going to put it on like everything that I own. Oh, no, Uh, you uh, do great work. (laughs) But like one of my biggest issues in my work is like getting students to understand that capitalist North American sport. um, You can just call it capitalist sport in general is actually like a white supremacist project it's right. It's uh' it's a long history of reifying um creating um and completely silencing completely racialized violence and 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 things that are terrible if we take the sport aspect out of it to think about we yep. We wouldn't even be able to kind of fathom it in any other system, but because it's sports. And because we enjoy it and we think we have this like narrative that sport is only good, that it can only do us like well, a positive like, that that narrative actually hides a lot of the things that I think you're talking about.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. And one of my obsessions over the last five or six years has been on, um, the fight to end native mascoting and imagery in sports. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm working on a, uh, film the uh, imagining the the Indian Film dot um, org. If your um, listeners want to go, check it out. and
0: Oh, we'll we'll throw that in the show notes for sure. Yeah.
1: Um, and you know, one of the amazing things is, and, and and this is even true when you talk about the Confederate flag in, in in the United States. Um, and I'm sure, and I I know you know Josh Newman, who's written mm-hmm. about this brilliantly down at uh, Florida yep. State. Yeah. Um. But there is nothing in this country, nothing in this country that probably has done more to normalize um, and glorify racism than sports. Mm -hmm. I I mean, you, you look at the Confederate flag and the Confederate flag became a became a part of the uniform a part of the the event of college football in the south which which Mm -hmm. has which slowly which slowly became the dominant part of college football in this country um it became a symbol for um for nascar in in this country i mean it promoted it it wore it it Stood for white supremacy. Um, so, so this is the role that, that that sports plays when it comes to racism, and, and this story that we just continue to spit out um, uh, as as journalists um, writing about sport and talking about sport, um, it just isn't just isn't accurate. And and you know, it it took me some some time to educate myself about this just two. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I tell you what, the, the moment that it really turned for me, it was in the, it was in the 1990s, um, early 1990s, when, there, when baseball decided maybe to do its first Jackie Robinson celebration. And uh, I called up Gerald Early, um, professor at Washington University in um, St. Louis, who's written a lot about culture and sports and boxing and baseball and just done it in a really fascinating interesting way and i I was talking to him about jackie robinson and the role that the jackie robinson story played in the civil rights movement and he Mm -hmm. was the first person who i really talked to or read who downplayed it which was fascinating to me but what he got me to think about was the fact that um you know, in this country, we talk about Jackie Robinson as a seminal moment in the civil rights struggle. Yeah. Um, but in fact, he wasn't a seminal moment in the civil rights struggle. He was part of a lineage that began really in the late 1930s. Um, uh, and, and that to single him out or single out that event uh, really does a disservice to history. Uh, and so that's when I really started to think harder about these issues and these events um, that we, we bring up in, in sports. Uh, and, I, and, I, and like I said, I think people now are finally, finally starting to clue in uh, as to what's the truth and what's been mythologized.
0: Yeah, and you you bring up the Washington football, um, NFL football team, yeah. and I know you're from Washington originally, so yeah. I imagine that would make you a Washington football fan. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely, I was uh, okay. all growing up, I bled the Burgundy and Gold.
0: Mm. So, so this frames my question um, because I want to get your thoughts. On the whole Washington football team situation, I want to get your thoughts on, on and whatever you feel comfortable sharing sure. um, on Dan Snyder as sure. as a as a like person and as an owner, and perhaps most interestingly, and you just wrote about this and I, I thought it was a really interesting piece: the often ignored influence of civil rights leader John Lewis on the erasure of that team's name, yeah. which is a narrative I don't think many people understand or even like would make upon first glance. Yeah, John Lewis
1: who is um being uh, uh funeralized, memorialized today um uh down in uh down in Atlanta an mm-hmm. extraordinary event um, three presidents uh speaking um Jimmy Carter unable to be there because of illness sent in a uh, his own uh, remembrance. Um, but um, John Lewis worked on 20 pieces of legislation or resolutions during his time in Congress dealing specifically with uh, Native American rights. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the um, most notable ones that did not become um, law was uh, a a non-disparagement act that uh, he worked on when he first got to uh, Capitol Hill was Suzanne Shone Har- Harjo herself, um, a civil rights icon in this country. Uh, particularly when it comes to Native affairs, she's um, she's uh, Cheyenne and Muscogee, um, mm-hmm. and they worked on they worked together on that bill, which was the first time such a bill had come up uh, on Capitol Hill um, in this country. So, yeah, so he played a, uh, uh, you know, he's played an integral role in um, uh, not just human rights and, and civil rights in this country, but particularly for Native people, for Native rights. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I grew up here with this team. And, you know, I never, I never really thought about the name until, um, until I was at the Super Bowl in 1992. and. When when Washington was playing Buffalo and it was in Minneapolis, which is a um, heavily populated Native area, and there was a there was a big protest against the name, and I had never never seen anything like that before. And that's when I first um, started to to think about the name being um, uh, being any sort of slur uh, against mm-hmm. Native people. And then some years later, when I was writing about a protest in um, in the panhandle of texas by the naacp against um a high school out there that was drenched in um, confederate imagery and uh the naacp was tired of having its black sons um score touchdowns and and baskets for the uh uh, for the sports teams out there they they Mm -hmm. wanted they wanted the, the, the school to um uh, to get rid of all that Confederate imagery, stop calling themselves the rebels, stop flying the Confederate yeah. flag. And I thought to myself, this is the exact same thing the native folks were saying in Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, and so I started; it started to resonate with me and I started to write a little bit about that conflict and how conflictual it was for me. And then I, slow, I started over the years to try not to write the name and try not to say the name but when it's so ingrained in you it's really really hard to do right <laughs> yeah. not only is it ingrained in the power in you, of sport narratives it, it's it, like, it, it's
0: the power it, of that fandom right it is
1: it really is it is so yeah. so strong and yeah. um, you know you 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 know you are you're steeped in it uh, mm-hmm. from as as young as you can you can remember so yeah it was a, it was it, it was hard to do but um, But I, you know, I finally got there, and uh, uh, and um, in 2014, with a a friend of mine, we started we started we decided to try and put together a film documenting um, what we thought was eventually going to be the overthrow of these of these names and and why that's important, and uh, and you know the interesting thing about the Black Lives Matter movement in the past few weeks, um, and how it uh, eventually engulfed the football team in this, in this city, um, mm-hmm. is that you know, there's a, it, it reminds that there is a long history um, of struggle um, by native people and by uh, the project of enslaved Africans in this country. It goes back to the Revolutionary War. Where mm-hmm. there were significant numbers of Native people and significant numbers of of Africans who sided with the Brits, um, because the Brits were going to one uh, for Native people, were going to get the colonialists off their necks, and for enslaved Africans, was promising to end slavery. And so, as far back as then, um, you know, we had um, we had some synergy. And I think yeah. that's kind of what that's one of the reasons that, um, you know, I've really gotten involved in, in where this story is today.
0: Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, actually, on the day um, that the Washington football team ultimately decided to change their name we had Jacqueline Keeler um, mm. on the show co-founder of eradicating offensive native uh masketry mm-hmm. and she also credits black lives black lives matter with like being an impetus for this massive political and social upheaval that we're seeing against sports and uh, sports teams names and and indigenous appropriation and all these things that we're seeing actually extend into Canada too.
1: Right. Um, right. The
0: Edmonton CFL team changed I their name, that. which I'm, I'm grateful to see all these things. And, and this is one of the things as a Canadian that we tend to downplay. We tend to think like the only negative things come from like our Southern neighbors. Like right now it's like, we're going to get COVID-19 from, <laughs> from United States. Right. But like, This is an example of one of the positive things that can come out of being so culturally synergistic with with the United States.
1: Yeah. And I was I was um, I was surprised to see um, Edmonton reckon with that name. Uh, But and and I was not familiar with much of the struggle before that um, to bring that to bring that about. But, um, you know, the pressure certainly was not on Edmonton like it was here in Washington. Or like, oh, no. oh, no. or like it's been on Cleveland or like it's been in Atlanta and just to see yeah. that wash over the um uh you know wash over the uh the border and to see them all of a sudden become as proactive as they did become that was impressive.
0: Mm-hmm. I I completely agree um and um I think Edmonton took far too long um right. and I think they were far too um laissez-faire about the entire thing from from day one mm. um and i think that's that's the story for everyone right like i think right. you can say the same thing about dan snyder that he well i i think you can say a little bit different person like i think you can explicitly call dan snyder a racist I right. think, um i think we can do that level but like in Canada, it's much more insidious. It's it's less overt, I guess, um, and, and much more insidious. And they have ways of just kind of manu- diverting attention away from these things here. But it was great to see yeah. Um, that. Yeah, <laughs> that, absolutely. That movement. Um, so shifting gears just a little bit, I, it's on the same, uh, it's it's all aligned, but I want to shift gears a little bit to the um, brilliant and powerful resistance that we are seeing to racial injustice, mm-hmm. racism, um, police brutality, uh, and white supremacy. That's kind of engulfed all of the world, I would say at this point. What do you make... Um, of what we 're seeing take place um in like the english premier league the n b a the m l s and to a far lesser degree um the n h l in terms of black lives matter so
1: um you know one thing about this is it's obviously being driven by uh by black male athletes right yeah um because this is um uh this started with um police lethality against um, against black men and and i should I should point out that I always try and say lethality and not brutality yeah um yeah you know um because there is a significant uh significant difference um and so uh it it it's good to see them understand um their role in bringing attention to this situation um and you, you you understand that it is um, policing practice that is not particular to this country. It's particular to policing where there are people of color. Yeah. Um. And so you see the connection between here and the UK. Um. And so you see the similar, um, the similar protests because you have the similar concerns. Um. And uh, you also have an understanding as athletes that people will, are more likely to pay attention to them talking about this issue than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the interesting things to me about sport. And I know you've studied this, written it, um, and folks in your, in your genre, and you make these points very clear um, about the connections between um, politics and sport and how sport is an undeniable platform that you can take issues that no one else pays enough attention to put it on a sports platform and everybody pays attention to it. And not only does Mm -hmm. everyone pay attention to it, but you can't turn away from it. Um, Mm -hmm. and sports can't turn it off because the minute they try and turn it off, it heightens the issue.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, it, 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 it makes it. Um, it makes people wonder about how important this issue is. If someone is trying to um, stifle the information, um, stifle this this resistance. So mm-hmm. I'm. Um, on the one hand, I'm I'm very very, I'm very very happy to see it. On the other hand, um, I'm concerned about the different degrees to which we see it. Yeah. Um, In some places it's been organic. In the NBA, it's been it is it's it's by permission. And so Mm -hmm. I I wonder if if you ask for permission for your protest, is it really still a protest? Yeah. Is it really um, just as strong Um, or have you allowed it to be co-opted? And we're
0: seeing, we're even seeing some, some NBA players coming out being like, I, I'm not engaging with this because there's rules. A-
1: exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, Jimmy Butler wanted yeah. to have no name. Yeah. And that became this thing that he was going to have to negotiate. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're remembering John Lewis this week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, John Lewis didn't negotiate. Um, protest as a freedom rider
2: mm-hmm. you know
1: they negotiated what they what they wanted as freedom rider yeah. um and so and so to me this is you know this is really problematic we saw it in baseball uh when it opened up the other week um where everyone knelt but not during the national anthem yeah so we have to be careful at this at this moment yeah um yeah. i think that's what all this All this kind of underscores.
0: So I have a little bit of a follow up. I was kind of leading in the in the question, but I I wanted to get your thoughts specifically on the NHL. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, and I
0: know you 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 might not be like following the NHL, but like they're starting up. Last night was like their or uh, a couple nights ago was their first right um, uh, game of sort. Yeah, like the the exhibition game or whatever, and they like did the most kind of flat response to. Um, To police brutality and to any form of resistance and rebellion against what's happening where they didn't kneel they there was very there was no black lives matter imagery anywhere they simply like stood next to each other and linked arms and I've argued in the past as you know that hockey culture is one of the most toxic cultures in all of sport. It's one of the most racist and white supremacist um, kind of promoting sports that exists. So I'm really, I, I'm kind of really leading you down this question, yeah. kind of. I'm, I'm but I, like I really wanted to get your your thoughts on on how the NHL is responding, and as perhaps the most racist mainstream sport that we have. One of them, I would probably put NASCAR up there as well. Sure. Well, um,
1: you know, once again, it goes back to the participation rate of black males who yeah. have experienced this um and who know this and the fact that uh so many um hockey players are from uh northern european countries um yeah. where this is not you know this is not part of the national conversation um it's it's a complete outlier so yeah. in that sense uh, you know if if i have if i have Black baseball players say and say that they are not as active on a on a political platform as basketball and football players because there are fewer of their numbers in the game, which should not be an excuse. Mm-hmm. But that's an argument, and I can certainly understand in um, in in hockey, which is still celebrating. Um, Willie O'Ree, um, yeah. that yeah. Uh, that you know they're just not they're just not um, attuned to this um, to this issue, and I also think the fact that um, and this is this gets back to the pandemic, um, but how how crazy is it, right? What does this say about the United States that the NHL is based in New York? That 24 Mm -hmm. of the 31 franchises play in the United States, but they can't do a a bubble here um, because the the pandemic has been so poorly handled and they put it in Toronto. And apparently so far, extremely successful um, in terms of nobody um, testing uh, positive for for the virus. Uh, But in putting it in Toronto, even though Toronto has had its racial problems. Oh, um, absolutely. Right. Um, it is, it is not penetrating that bubble. It has not been allowed to penetrate that bubble. There is no one within that bubble who is thinking about this, this issue um, mm-hmm. because it has not impacted um, the game. Uh, in fact, one could argue back to your point that, when it comes to uh, racial violence, the the most racial violence that's been experienced by the NHL has actually been on the ice, yep. right? Um, yep. And so um, uh, you know it's and that's something that the league does not like to talk about. Um, so yeah, again, I think it comes down to the, the 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 population of 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 athletes in the sport who may or may not have um, experience uh these life incidents um like all the rest of us i mean because it because one, one thing that's 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 hard to to find in uh, in america is a black man who has not had an unpleasant encounter um completely unnecessary with police
0: yeah, and, and ho- I'm so with you that hockey is that it, some of it does come down to demographics of the athletes. And I, I do want to give a very brief shout out to some amazing work happening in hockey. I don't know if you've heard of the Hockey Diversity Alliance started yeah. by Akeem Alou, Nazim Kadri, Evander Kane, Trevor Daly, Chris Stewart, Matt Dumba, Anthony DeClaire, these, and Wayne Simmons. These athletes who are coming together Creating an organization to eradicate systematic, systemic racism and intolerance in hockey, but the Mm. fact that all of that the all of the labor has to be on basically (laughs) the the seven most notable um, uh, racialized people in the sport, right, is is indicative of all the problems with the NHL.
1: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. The NHL has really got to, um, um, they really got to change their. Uh, their approach to this, um, yeah. you know, their big their their biggest idea has been diversifying the game. Yeah. Um, but uh, in part, if you're going to diversify the game, um, you need to clean up that imagery, uh, and you yep. need to get uh, engaged in issues beyond the ice.
0: Yeah, you need you need to change that narrative in your culture, yep. in your culture of hockey. And and I don't I, I I agree with I think the NHL does not even understand that to be a problem or an issue. Now you, you did mention. um, So we've talked about a lot of the, the men's professional sport, but you've written on some of the overlooked political statements made by athletes who've not received some of this like widespread attention. And I'm thinking here of players, obviously like Colin Kaepernick or Michael Bennett, who was on the show that they have received a lot of attention for these things. But in June, you wrote a piece telling the story of how um, former WNBA player and now coach Rebecca Brunson and her Minnesota Lynx teammates were taking a very public stand against unchecked police lethality, as you point as you point out against black men before Colin Kaepernick sort of famously took his knee for our listeners who may fall victim to this hegemonic narrative that like. These are the only athletes who are standing up, like like the Colin Kaepernicks of the world. That he right. was the sort of first to protest. Can you tell a little bit about that story here for our listeners?
1: Sure, and you know, and it's and let it be no surprise, right, that women are um, are so often overlooked. Uh, you know, I, I've I've asked people before um, a question about the Black Lives Matter movement. I say, who started it? Who runs it? And they will wonder for a minute and they'll say DeRay McKisson because that's who they see and he's memorable because of the blue vest. Uh, But the fact of the matter is it's three black women. um, They continue to to lead the charge. Um, But they've been overlooked or forgotten for whatever reasons uh, because of their gender. Um, Just like, uh, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer and uh, and, and other women during the... uh, during the civil rights movement um and that's something we need to um we need to fix Uh, but when you have an industry dominated by men particularly white men they get overlooked Mm -hmm. and so yeah yeah, rebecca brunson you know she's from the dc area um, played high school college ball here and uh retired a a few years ago um but before she did um and by the way she retired as the number one rebounder in the history of the WNBA. Mm-hmm. And I just want to point that out because the <laughs> other day that record was broken by yeah. um, folks and in a, at, in, in a class move that every athlete should emulate. She went on social media to call people to the attention that that record was going to be set that night and then congratulated on social media the person breaking the record that she held. Um, yeah. there was no equivocating, no comparison, just, just, uh, just applause. So that, 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 was great. But so, so in August of 2016, everybody knows famously that Colin Kaepernick first started being seen taking a knee, um, to police lethality. But back in, um, a couple months before that, um, or, or a month before that, Women with the WNBA Lynx championship team, best team in WNBA's history, um, had stood up uh, against Mm. the same issue um, after Philando Castile was shot five times and and killed um, by police in the Twin Cities, and also against um, Alton Sterling, who had been shot and killed um, down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And so, uh, I wanted to highlight. I wanted to highlight that um, to let people know. Number one, that there is there is a, a, a lot of people believe that there was no sports protest before Colin Kaepernick. And once again, yeah. this, once again, this gets back to lineage and continuum, um, yeah. which is one of the reasons I started teaching this. I designed this course called Sports Protest and Media because I want students to understand that there is a long history of protest in sports and for very good reason. And that Colin Kaepernick is just the latest and there were plenty before him and there, and as we now know, there are plenty after him. Um, Mm -hmm. and some of them, uh, have been, have been women. And I just thought that that was really, um, you know, what those women did at the time didn't get nearly as much fanfare. And the blowback against them was, uh, even uh, in some regards um uh more um horrendous um mm-hmm. you know the the police force at their game after their first protest um walked out because they refused Imagine to that. yeah they refused mm-hmm. to protect uh do their job in protecting fans and players at that game because they said that those women Um, had verbally attacked them by their statement and by having wearing T-shirts that said um, Black Lives Matter and calling for justice and accountability. Um, And then the the WNBA, which is owned by the NBA, um, which has the reputation as being this incredibly progressive political sports organization, reacted by by, um, fining the women. And, uh, and, uh, only backing off after there was some, uh, public finger pointing at them from some of us in the media, um, mm-hmm. calling them hypocritical. Yeah. So, and then they, they, they backed off and they said, well, you know, it was, we were concerned that this was a, um, a, uh, uniform violation because they were wearing these t-shirts, <laughs> uh, which is just, you know, absolutely, you know, just absolutely laughable. So, um, yeah, so it's important that we, you know, that, that we know these, uh, we know these histories, you know, even back in the 1950s, uh, there was a, a a star athlete, um, female athlete in the United States by the name of Rose Robinson. And, um, she was, uh, I believe she was a field, um, a field athlete. Um, but she, um, refused to be, uh, part of, the Of the appropriation by the federal government of using um, black athletes as some sort of example of of American exceptionalism when it came to race, and mm-hmm. you know she refused to stand for the national anthem <laughs> and nice. next thing you know, she was kind of drummed out of um, out of amateur athletics, so there have been people. You know, people like this. And now you look, we look forward, we have the hammer thrower here, um, Gwen yeah. Berry, who, uh, yeah. who uh, followed in um, Rose Robinson's footsteps and did the same thing, I think, at the, at the Pan Am Games um, a number mm-hmm. of years ago. Um, so yeah, there have been women involved in these uh, protest movements um, uh, for as long as we can remember. And one of the things I, I show my class, and you, you, may, you may do the same, But um, during the women's um, suffrage movement uh, in the UK, uh, back around the turn of the last century, um, there was a woman named. uh, Well, first of all, people don't realize how militant the women's suffrage movement was. I mean, Mm -hmm. these women were these women were trying to bring down the patriarchy, right? I mean, and and what did they do to try and bring it down? They attacked. They 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 attacked um, sports complexes because they knew that that would get the attention of the patriarchy. And yeah. this, and this one woman, Emily Davison, at one of the uh, famous um, horse races in England—I forget which one—but she had a banner that she tried to wrap around the uh, uh, a horse um, coming around the bend at the end of a race and was trampled to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she understood the importance of sport and people paying attention to this very life or death issue. And she gave up her life for that issue at a sporting event. Um, yeah. Women very much involved in, in, in these struggles.
0: Wow. You, you, like, you gave that question much more than sort of I had anticipated. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so, so, <laughs> no, no. Got thank you for thank you. that. Because I, I think that really highlights, like, the importance of um women in in social rebellion and in the in this current moment and one of the reasons why i was asking um about wnba particularly is honestly because one i am a massive fan of really? them and everything they're doing and what a great sport two um they seem to be in the most uh unison and um they seem to be pushing boundaries more so than other leagues. And they seem to be very much in solidarity in mm-hmm. how they're doing it and all putting Brandon Lewis's name on their, um, jerseys like they're in other people have a lot to learn from what's happening in the, in the WNBA right now yeah. and people aren't paying attention Yeah, no, I as think, much as they should.
1: Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and, uh, you know, they've had a lot more, um, I think allyship with, uh, with um white athletes in their game. In fact, one of the yep. of the four women with the Minnesota Lynx who did that early protest um in honor of uh, in remembrance of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling was Lindsay Whalen, who was yep. a tremendous point guard. Um I wanna say she retired as maybe the leading assist leader in the history of the WNBA. Um but yet um you know her skin color did not get in the way of her standing next to um, her black sisters, Rebecca Brunson, Maya Moore, um, and Simone Augustus, and and look mm-hmm. at what a Maya Moore, look at what Maya Moore did. Um,
0: yeah, we just we just published we, an episode on Maya Moore where we talked to Curtis Streeter from New York Times. Yeah, on, and, on and my, you know,
1: and the most remarkable thing about her to me um, is that she has established an organization. Um, I forget the name of it. But she is trying to her, her goal is to get people to understand the importance of the electoral process when it comes to um, uh, the election of prosecutors in this country. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Because
1: they are yeah. the source of prosecutorial um, uh, injustice. And mm-hmm. uh, so she wants people to, to be involved in that. Um, so, yeah, tremendous. I mean, she's going to have she's creating a a legacy for an issue that she
0: Absolutely. got involved in. Absolutely. And full solidarity here on that show for everything that these athletes are doing, in spite of the fact that they are quite literally putting their livelihoods on the table yep. every time they do it. So full solidarity from us um, to them. The last thing I'd like to talk to you about, mm-hmm. I, I, we've, we've been here for a little while. I don't want to take too much of your time. No I'd like to talk a little bit about college sport and college athletics um, in general. In in early July, um, so just a few weeks ago, you wrote a piece for the Washington Post suggesting that it's time for black athletic laborers to demand new ground rules that coaches and teams must understand those athletic laborers, not as cogs in a billion-dollar NCAA machine, but as citizens and as people. And we are fully on board. Here at the end of sport, with with that take, um, we've written we just published a piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education calling for this exact um, thing. Well, okay. something a little bit a little bit different, but yeah. we're calling for us to completely rethink higher education and athletics within that system of higher education. Could I get your thoughts? on the ncaa's return to play protocol and what is happening right now as athletic laborers all across this country will learn to or return to and i'm using scare quotes here voluntary um workouts um, and we're like seeing massive outbreaks in almost every major football program, most notably Clemson, but Oklahoma right. State. And this is after like people like Dabo Sweeney are saying like, "Oh, God has the power to stamp this thing oh, out," God. and Mike Gundy saying we need money to flow through the state of Oklahoma. I just want to get your thoughts on what, as a as a journalist, as someone who's interested in the cultural elements of sport, everything that's happening here in the NCAA.
1: Yeah, and of course. Um uh, Mike Gundy uh, spoke truth, <laughs> right? Because the only reason uh, you would want these football players uh, back on campus and playing football during a pandemic um, is to pay his salary and to uh, generate revenues for the, for the Oklahoma State part of the college athletic industrial complex. Um, completely truthful. Um, and completely cold hearted. And that's what big time college sports in this country is. And one thing I try to uh, emphasize to people anytime I talk about college sports, and once again, this gets back to the issue of this this is a black male issue, period, full stop. And it's a black male issue because on major college campuses in this country, undergraduate black male enrollment is a little less than 3%. But on the rosters of revenue-generating football and basketball teams, they make up in the neighborhood of 60%. Which means that if you're just walking across a major campus in this country, and you bump into a black male, chances are that that black male is there to generate revenues for the uh, athletic industrial complex rather than be educated, which is ostensibly why everyone on a college campus is there in the first place, at least for students. Yeah. And so that's really troubling. And then the other thing you, you, you one has to think of is that the revenues that they generate Go to make coaches, multi-millionaires, athletic directors, multi-millionaires, um, some other coaches, millionaires, and even more uncomfortably, maybe, create a financial foundation for every other sport on the campus to exist, all of which are primarily played by uh, white males, and mm-hmm. white women. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you saw that really play out in a really perverted way when we had the um, college admission scandal um, mm-hmm. in this country where uh, Hollywood types and other very well-to-do um, white families whose students, whose, whose children were not really qualified to be in elite, some of the elite colleges that they wanted them to be in. Um, They forged their narratives as athletes on these country club types of sports um, to get into school. Uh, and, And they were there contributing really nothing to the historical narrative of the institution they wound up being at and we're only there because black male athletes created the money for the rowing team or yeah. for the equestrian team or for the soccer team um, yeah. to even exist and so that's what's really troublesome about it and so when people talk about college athletics as a plantation system that mm-hmm. is exactly what the, um, that is a very apropos um, comparison because yeah. you have black males um, in the fields raking in money so that everyone else um, can benefit and they do not get an equitable return either in um, finances or in benefits from the institution for which they're doing all this work. And it's a system yeah. that needs to change.
0: Absolutely. And and so we we've talked Stanley Eitz and we've talk, we've talked Dr. Harry Edwards and and the work that they're doing to like make this a narrative that makes that resonates with people a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But every time I think about this, I think back to my time at the University the University of South Carolina uh, when I would have students in my class the, the ones you're talking about, the athletes who are producing revenue for these for every other league, every other team to run. And they were in my class before the semester even started. They were taking summer school and the golf team was on an all expense paid trip with them and their families to Hawaii. Wow. And wow. Yes. and And that is that moment changed my own my naive if i had any naivete as a canadian going down to the southern u.s that changed everything for me right right
1: and 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 that's got to be amazing and i've I've talked to to folks in canada before who've come down here um because this is the only place on the planet earth where we have this situation where we have when we have higher education tethered to a for-profit sports industry cloaked in a non-profit veil. Yeah, I, it's just—I mean, it's just—it's just stunning. Um, yeah. And it, and and people from people from the UK come here, people from Canada come here, people from Australia come here, and they look at our system and they and they just start scratching their head like, "What, what are you doing?" <laughs> yeah. How did it get yeah. to this?
0: Listen, we are one of our mottos on this show, and I've tweeted out n- numerous times, is we need to stop tethering athletic labor to education. Absolutely. Period.
1: Absolutely. End,
0: end of story.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've yet to see one college or university with a mission statement that says we have to win a tournament come out first in the conference and produce all American athletes yet to see it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And yet we take, um, young predominantly, um, black athletic laborers out of school for a month in March and April, um, because academics matter. Right. So we just take them out of school. Um, (laughs) so I have, I have a very succinct question for you. Um, do you think it's time to end college sports?
1: Well, no, I don't think it's time to end college sports, but what I've long argued for is it's time to create a new, a, a completely new structure for, for college sports. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that, I think that um, the revenue-generating sports should be separated from the um, academic side of the university, and they should be the professional sports, which they, which they are, and that um, uh, everybody working in that in that part of the campus should be treated as an employee, um, mm-hmm. and if those athletes want to um, matriculate as students, that they should be allowed to do so, just like other employees of the of the university system. Um, yeah, you know who you know people who work in food service or people who who um, keep the buildings. Uh, safe and clean um have an opportunity at uh having tuition remission and taking courses towards graduation i think that should be i think that should be afforded them but i think the the that revenue generating part should not as you as you point out should not be tied to um to academics you know they if they want to wear the team colors and play in team in school facilities um, they ought to pay rights fees to the university in order to do that and mm-hmm. i don't, and I think that that can be done and i don't I don't think that it would at all change the fanaticism for the for the the schools and those teams I think you know mm-hmm. people who are tied to those those schools and those colors and and root for those teams will still be It'll just be a different yeah. um it's just a different uh financial and social um arrangement uh, but as it is right now yeah just it's it is, um, and to me, it's, it's unethical, it's immoral and it's, uh, and, and for a lot of schools, it's not even sustainable. Yeah.
0: And perhaps how about we consider... Making um, college life more affordable and how how rather than right. saying there's a, uh, that narrative that like this is an opportunity for people who wouldn't have an opportunity. How about we rethink higher education so that those people who are systematically facing barriers in every aspect of life so that those people can go and they can engage with higher education in a way that they haven't been able to historically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we are at a tipping point right now in this country with the expense of higher education. Um, And it's going to, if it's not at a reckoning now, it's going to soon be at a reckoning because people just cannot um, afford to pay it um, or have um, so much of their adult lives um, uh, affected by having to pay it back. Um, It's just, it's, it's a system that needs to be changed
0: well Kevin Blackstone I cannot think of a better way to change it other than it's a system that needs to be changed thank you so much for spending an hour with us today and and chatting with us and giving us insight into your life um, as a as a journalist as one of the um, journalists that we often look to on this show for our own takes on a lot of things so thank you so much for coming
1: on the show. Oh, thanks for the invite, Derek. Anytime.
0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the End of Sport Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at Sport Pod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.